Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, a weekly look into the world of Royal Caribbean cruising. I'm your host, Matt Hotchberg, and this is episode number 174. Of all the Royal Caribbean questions I'm asked, it's very common for me to hear from first-time cruisers who are concerned that they might be making a mistake when booking their first cruise itinerary. There are a lot of options, so this week, I'm taking some time to go over Royal Caribbean itinerary recommendations for first-time cruisers. Here we go. If there's a fear about taking a Royal Caribbean cruise, whether you're a first-timer or taking your 500th cruise, it's that you're doing the wrong thing, right? It's probably one of the most common concerns that I run across, and it's probably why a lot of times if you go on RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com and you read the comments or maybe you listen to this podcast or you hang out with us on Periscope, you may start to notice a lot of questions being repeated. And it's not because people can't read or don't listen. It's because they're concerned. They generally want to make sure they're not making a mistake, and that's certainly a very natural instinct, right? For no matter what you're doing, if you're going to have your car repaired, you're going to the dentist or whatever you're doing in your day-to-day life, you want to make sure you're not making mistakes. And when it comes to taking a Royal Caribbean cruise, a lot of people have that fear as well, especially people that are either first-time cruisers or even just new to Royal Caribbean. And so this week, I wanted to talk about itinerary recommendations for first-time cruisers. Now, let me start off by saying there is probably no mistake you really can make in terms of itineraries. The only itineraries I might ever say, you know what, this is probably not a good idea for a first-timer, might be like something like a transatlantic or an itinerary that's really port-intensive, but even then, I'm not even sure I would go that far. Certainly, you might want to sway somebody one way or the other, but the good thing to, re- to realize is you really can't go wrong with itinerary recommendations. I mean, Royal Caribbean offers a lot of different itineraries. I mean, they have a number of ships that go to destinations in the Caribbean, Europe, Alaska, Asia, Australia, and really everywhere else in between, so... There are a lot of cruises to choose from, and I really think you'd be hard-pressed to make a quote-unquote mistake. So when we talk about this, though, here are some guidelines to consider. First of all, the ships. Obviously, there's a number of ships in the fleet, and regardless of which ship you pick, they each offer something different and interesting. And depending on what you're looking for, that can dictate a lot of what what would be a good ship for you, okay? There's a lot of different great ships out there. This is probably one of the most hotly debated topic. What is the best ship for a first-timer? I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you my answer, and I'm going to give you the other answer. The other answer I'm going to start out with first is there is no wrong answer. All the ships are wonderful. I would not hesitate to recommend any of them to anybody. They're all wonderful for different reasons. Certainly, you need to understand what you're looking for in your cruise. So certainly, if you're looking for a ship that is going to offer you the latest and greatest in the flow riders and the, and the skydiving simulators and bumper cars, well... Certainly, a Radiance-class ship is probably not what you're looking for for your first cruise. (laughs) But if you're fairly open to it or you're indifferent to what the ship offers and you're more interested in the destinations or you're just interested in getting your feet wet, obviously, the ship selection has less to do with it. A couple things to keep in mind about ships in general, and this is, again, this is a generalization, so it's not always going to fly, but it's most 9 out of 10 times this will be true. Generally speaking, the newer the ship, the more expensive it will be relative to the other ships in the fleet. The way that it works is when a Royal Caribbean builds a new ship, say, let's talk about Harmony of the Seasons as an example, because as of the recording of this podcast, it is the newest cruise ship in the fleet. It is going to command the highest price, generally speaking, because it's it's got that premium tag. It's the latest and greatest, and it's the newest, right? It's this season's hot look, so to speak, if this were fashion. Versus the Voyager-class ships, or the Freedom-class ships, which have been around the block for a little bit. Nothing wrong with them by any means, but they're going to be less expensive. So if you're looking at price... Certainly, you can get a great value out of the Voyager-class ships, even the Radiance-class ships, the Freedom-class ships to some extent as well. I mean, it really depends what you're looking for. But when I talk to people who are brand new to cruising and you say, Matt, I want to have a recommendation for what ship is good for me, 
I generally recommend Royal Caribbean's Oasis and Quantum Clash ships because I think they are they are perfect first timers. Now, again, before you're throwing your phones ac- across the room or yelling at your car and, and <laughs> you know just getting all upset about this, there is absolutely nothing wrong with a first timer taking a cruise on a Voyager class ship, a Radiance class ship, a Vision class ship, any of those. But the reason why I recommend, in general, Oasis and Quantum Class ships for first-timers is simply because I think first-timers have certain expectations, certain uh, ideas of what a cruise can be based on what they've seen in the media, what they've heard from friends, maybe what they've even read on a website like RoyalCreamBlog.com. Certainly, they have these preconceived notions, right or wrong, but those ships, the Oasis and Quantum Class ships, are going to match up the best with them because they have Royal Caribbean's latest and greatest they go to great destinations, and they are really well-suited for new cruisers because they have been designed with new cruisers in mind uh, because this is really where the industry is going. So when you're talking about the Oasis and Quantum Class ships, these are ships that have come out in the last five to a little less than ten years. Oasis of the Seas is not quite ten years old yet, but isn't that weird? If you're, if you're, if you're not new to cruising, you're thinking, just, oh my gosh, we're coming up on ten years on Oasis. That's just crazy. Anyway, sorry, that's a side tangent there. But I'm telling you that Oasis and Quantum Class, if you, if you want to, a recommendation for a first-timer ship, I, I would definitely recommend that one. Now, in terms of itinerary, there's a lot to consider. And depending on where you live and where you're looking to go, that may dictate also going back to what ship is available to you. I mean, if you're saying, hey, Matt, I want, I'm want i a first-time cruiser and I'm going out of Sydney, Australia, well, you're going to be slightly more limited in terms of options. That being said, there's great itineraries all over the place. I mean, you've got you know the, the Mediterranean, you've got Bahamas cruises, you've got Western Caribbean, you've got Canada cruises. There's a lot to consider. Now, what I like to recommend for first-timers is an itinerary that has a fairly good mix of sea days versus port days. The reason why I say that is because if you do too heavy on one or the other, you're going to, I think, skew your expectations and also your experience. Having a mix, a good mix of sea days and port days allows you to really experience it all. As a first-time cruiser, I think one of the big concerns is getting your feet wet, right? Understanding what cruising is. Certainly, you have an idea of it. Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're kind of getting an idea of what to expect, but... You know, it's it's kind of a a different scenario because you're not exactly sure what it uh, what it's all about. You can only read and understand and listen so much, but you got experience it for yourself. So generally speaking, I try to avoid recommending first timers do a Southern Caribbean cruise or even some Mediterranean cruises, just because there's so many ports involved. There's nothing wrong with having port days, but you know, on a seven night cruise or something like that, you should have a you know three and four, right? Three port days, four sea days, or vice versa, whatever the case may be, but. I think that for a first-timer, picking an itinerary that mixes in an even amount of sea days and port days is a good idea because they'll give you ample opportunity to explore the ship as well as the wonderful places you'll be visiting. Now, that brings, of course, to cruise length. What's the proper time? The most common mistake I think people make when picking their first cruise is, oh, I'm going on a cruise. I've never been on one before. I will pick the shortest cruise possible because that will give me you know, the least resistance. right? If I hate it, I can get off the ship pretty quickly. That logic should make sense, but it actually doesn't make sense. It's actually a bad idea. And the reason, I'll get into that, but I actually recommend taking a cruise about five to seven night sailings because the reality is those three and four night sailings are just too short. I mean, this is coming from obviously from a seasoned cruiser, but by going with a slightly longer cruise, you'll have the opportunity to really explore the ship and enjoy the experience. Shorter cruises go by so quickly, and for someone who's brand new to cruising, it doesn't provide nearly enough opportunity and time, really, on board the ship, or on shore for that matter, to really get a sense of it all. You're, you're going to be, just as you're figuring it all out, you're getting off the ship. And whether you love it or hate it, it's going to be a bad experience. So, for that reason, I feel like 
a longer cruise is a better. Now, when I say longer, I'm just saying five to seven nights. I'm not saying you have to do a 14-night cruise. I'm like, yeah, you can do that as well. But five to seven nights is that sweet spot. It is what I always recommend. And, and the reality of it also is that uh, it's, it's going to maximize your vacation time for the week because, you know, if you're going to take four days off for the week anyway, why not just take another extra day and make a seven-night cruise out of it? It's going to be a better value anyway. And the other thing to keep in mind is that Royal Caribbean ships are designed to be destinations in and of themselves rather than just a floating hotel room. They're not they're not a floating hotel. I mean, they are, but they aren't. They're, there's so much more to it, and you're going to want to have enough time to experience it all. So when you're talking about a cruise that's five to seven nights, that'll give you enough time to see a lot of it, and it'll also give you a much better value for your dollar because you will have felt like, okay, I had enough time on board to really experience it all. Those three and four-nighters, they just go by so, so quickly. So I really hesitate to ever recommend them for first-timers. I know it's like, it seems like it's the most natural answer, but in fact, it's actually the probably one of the biggest mistakes first-time cruisers make. So avoid those short sailings. Go for those five to seven nights and be the best thing to do. Now, in terms of picking the right sailing, well, like I said earlier, any itinerary that has a good mix of port calls and sea days will give first-time cruisers a good sense of what a cruise is like. So what you really want to avoid are itineraries that have a lot of port days or a lot of sea days. So, you know, transatlantic's probably not a good idea for a first-time cruiser. Southern Caribbean, probably not a good idea for a first-time cruiser. Some Mediterranean itineraries as well. I mean, just you want to have a mix. That's all I'm saying. You know, more than one day of port days, more than one day of sea days. You want to get a chance to understand what that offers. Now, for those of us here in the United States or anyone who can travel to the United States, I generally recommend an Eastern or Western Caribbean sailing that includes a stop at either Royal Caribbean's private destination of Labadee or Coco Cay. Now, these are, if you're unaware of these, the Labadee and Coco Cay or Royal Caribbean's little, I don't want to say private islands because Labadee is actually not an island, it's a peninsula, but never mind that. There are these private areas that Royal Caribbean has leased from the government of Haiti or, or the Bahamas, and they created these private, really, oases of paradise to check out, and it's a lot of fun, and you know what, These the Eastern and Western itineraries give you a good feel for what cruising is like as they visit some well-established ports, very mature cruise ports that offer a lot to do, and these are just really fun islands that are well-established with plenty to offer in terms of shore excursions. Now, if you're talking about cruises that go to Europe, Asia, or Alaska, it's important to look for sailings that mix in that blend of port stop and sea days. It's not to say that you should avoid this particular island or that particular city, but it's a matter of just ensuring that as a first-timer, you want to get a good blend of both. So whatever you're picking, make sure there is a blend of them all. Now, also, saving money on your cruise is obviously a big, important thing, right? I mean, for a first-time cruiser, that's the other question. It's like, how do I get a deal on a cruise? How do I how do I make sure I'm not overpaying for it? Now, regardless of which ship you pick or which sailing you want to go on, everyone wants to make sure you're getting the lowest possible price. So here are some couple of good strategies to ensure you get the lowest price possible. These if you listen to this podcast at any length at all, you're going to find these are mantras of mine, and they're very important because they apply whether you're a first-time cruiser or it's you know you're, you're a pinnacle member in Royal Caribbean's Crown and Anchor Society. They all work. First and foremost, book your cruise as early as possible. There is no such thing as booking your cruise too early. Period. I know with airfare, people say, "Oh, don't book it too far. Don't book it too far in advance." That's not true with cruises. You want to book it as early as you can. The reason for it is because the lowest prices are going to favor those who book it early on. In general, the way that cruising pricing works is it's based on supply and demand. When a cruise ship is first put on sale, all the rooms are available, and so that means it's got to have the greatest supply possible at that point. As people start booking rooms, supply starts to go down, and that will drive prices up. Now, again, this is this is this is a generalization, but this is basically how it works. So the the 
the earlier you book your cruise, the more supply there will be. Thus, generally speaking, the lower the prices will be. And if you talk to Royal Caribbean veterans in general, they will they will back me up on this and tell you that generally speaking, this is the best strategy. And oftentimes, you will find people repricing cruises, you know, throughout the the months leading up to their cruise to find a better deal. But once they book 12, 18, 24 months in advance, they often find that is the best price when they booked it because prices tend to go up as you get closer to sailing date. So book it as early as you can. Number two, cruise during less busy times of the year. I know we all tend to say, oh, little Billy has a vacation coming up for spring break. Certainly, that would be a great time to go on a cruise, and it can be. But understand you're going to pay more to go on a cruise during spring break or summer vacation or Christmas break than you will in the month of January or in early February or the months of September, October. So you want to make sure you're looking at the time of year. And if you can, if you can swing it, if you've got kids and taking them out of school is a possibility or not a terrible idea, then certainly going off school calendars is usually a really good idea. Now, for the best fares, I generally recommend cruising during these times of the year, January with the exception of New Year's, of course, early February, September, October, early November, and the first two weeks of December, like right now, this week and next week is great times to go. If you can take those times, that's wonderful. If you can't, that's okay. It's not going to say it's not going to say that you're going to be paying, you know, <laughs> a lot more than somebody else. But keep in mind, you're going to be paying a little bit more because there's higher demand for that. So that's really the basics of picking your first cruise itinerary. I guess in in closing, what you want to keep in mind is number one, you really can't make a mistake. The only mistake I could really see, and even then, I would say, oh, it's not a terrible idea. It's just not an optimal idea. Transatlantic is probably the one thing I would avoid. Pick an itinerary that favors a blend of port days and sea days, and pick a ship that's right for you, keeping in mind what you are looking for on the ship. Are you looking for just a, you just want to go hang out by the pool all day and, and swim and, and sunbathe? Or are you looking for those wow moments on board? Are you looking for a North Star? Are you looking for bumper cars? Are you looking for ice skating rinks? Are you looking for aqua theaters and Central Park and, and those kind of features? Make sure you're you're honest with yourself what you're looking for. And if you're not sure, that's okay, too. If you're saying, man, I really don't know. I'm, I'm kind of new to this. I don't know if the, how important those things are. That's okay, too. Keeping in mind, then, my recommendations earlier, to go with an Oasis or Quantum class ship to start off with, and then going from there. As uh, Just to share a personal story, my first cruise was on Explorer of the Seas. Now, granted, this was going back a little bit before the Oasis or Quantum class existed, but I went on that ship. It was a wonderful ship, and we could line up a ton of people who would tell, swear by their first cruise was on a, a Sovereign-class ship or a Radiance or a Vision-class ship, and they'd tell you, it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with taking those, and they're absolutely right. I think it's just understanding what your expectations are, what you're looking for in the cruise, and when all else fails, you know, just picking something that, you know, going with maybe the recommendations I made here. And as well, the other thing we probably should mention, and I, and I apologize for not mentioning it earlier because it is important, use a travel agent. As a first-time cruiser, you, I know you have a lot of questions, and that's what I'm here for, but I can only answer so many of them. Uh, but nonetheless, you should have someone in your corner, so to speak, to help you all along the process. Not to say you can't email me and, and come on Periscope or on, on Facebook and ask me these questions. I, I love answering them, in fact. But having a travel agent there to also assist you makes a huge difference, and a good travel agent should cost you nothing extra because Royal Caribbean is paying them, not you. And you only stand to benefit from it from that level of expertise and service. So a travel agent is probably that X factor that we should probably very, very much highlight as something a first-time cruiser should consider when picking the first Royal Caribbean itinerary for them. No Royal Caribbean blog episode is complete without sharing your feedback, and so we have plenty of great emails to read. And this week's episode is being brought to you by, well, you. 
can learn how you can support the show and become a member of the Royal Caribbean Blog Insiders, where you'll have access to exclusive content, rewards, events, and products such as t-shirts, priority listener email access, early access to each podcast episode, bonus podcast episodes, and a whole lot more. It's completely optional and a great way to support the show, starting for as little as $1 per month. For more information, visit royalcaribbeanblog.com slash support. And naturally, so many of you have been wonderful supporters of the Royal Caribbean Blog Insiders for a while now, and thank you so much for your support. It really means a lot. It really goes a long way to helping the blog. And speaking of you, let's start answering those emails. And our first email this week comes to us from Tom. He writes, hi, Matt. I live in Sydney, Australia, and have enjoyed listening to your podcast for a number of years. I've been on Royal Cruises, most on Voyager of the Seas. We have planned a short five-night cruise on the Ovation of the Seas in January 2017. We're traveling with another family, and both of us have teenage boys of the same age. I've been online and booked both the iFly sessions and the Pixel Show in 270 for all of us. My question is about North Star. The North Star is not online to book, so I wondered how do you book a ride on it? Also, I heard that it only operates when the ship is docked and does not hang over the side of the ship. Is this true? If not, when does it operate and is it worthwhile? Once again, thanks for the informative podcast and happy cruising. Great question, Tom. North Star is that observational pod that is on the Quantum Clash. It's basically, it's kind of like a small London Eye type area. It's a little capsule uh-huh. that can accommodate somewhere in the ballpark of like 12, 14 people. You're standing. There's no sitting. You're just standing around. And the arm lifts off the, the ship. The pod is attached to the end of the arm. It goes up in the air. And like I said, it brings you up about 300 feet in the air. It's wonderful. It gives you amazing views. I don't care where you are. You can be anywhere in the world, uh-huh. even the most boring places. You will see in a, fan- a fantastic view of that area. So it's really, really nice. Now, you want to be able to book it online. I'm kind of surprised, Tom, you can't book it. There's two possibilities. One is that it's all booked up and there's nothing available. I kind of doubt that. Two is that the way that they're operating North Star on Ovation is slightly different than where they've been operating North Star here on Anthem and Seas back in the States. Uh, I can't speak to Royal Caribbean's operational <laughs> procedures and why there's a difference or there isn't a difference, but here's a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, regardless if you have a reservation or not, North Star will always allow folks to line up and go on a first-come, first-served basis. Keep in mind, people that have reservations will be allowed access first. That being said, if you want to experience North Star, the best thing you can do is show up to it anytime it's about to open. So let's say you look in the cruise compass and it says, oh, it's going to be operational from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. I'm just making up times, okay? What you should do is plan on getting to North Star around 8.45 a.m., be like one of the first people in line, you'll have no problems. What you want to avoid is showing up, you know, oh, it's from 9 to 1.30. Okay, I'm going to roll in at 11.30 and just, you know, oh, there should be no line, right? No, there's going to be a line there and you're going to wait a while for it. Uh-huh. So the key is to time it that way. The other good time to experience North Star is either when you're in port or during dining times, like during dinner after like 4, 4.30, people start to head back to the rooms to get ready for dinner and that often opens up a lot of public areas. This is true not only of the North Star but also the Flowrider and some other popular areas of the ship which which have limited capacity. So that's kind of your basics of it. So I know you wanted to book something online and if you can't and it's still not there, Tom, don't worry. You will have the opportunity to experience it without a reservation. Now you mentioned that it only operates when the ship is docked and does not hang over the side of the ship. Is this true? I can't speak for ovations. I know that on Anthem of the Seas they do it while at sea or while in port. When, when in port, you're right. They, have, they cannot go over the side of the ship. So basically the, the North Star goes up you, know, you move a little bit, but not much laterally, right? When you're at sea, the North Star can move laterally over the side of the ship, so you get kind of a off-ship angle. You're actually over the ocean, not just the ship. That's been the policy I'm aware of, Tom, so that's kind of what I would expect there. Good questions. Thank you for sending us the email. Our next email comes to us 
from Tony, who writes, Hi, Matt. I just heard your latest podcast, and one of the emails you answered was about the WoW bands on Harmony of the Seas. We were on Harmony of the Seas over the summer, and we were given WoW bands for free because we were staying in a junior suite. However, all the cabin doors on the Harmony use RFID and can be opened with just a swipe of your CPAS cards, so there's really no need for WoW bands. Because of this, please tell your listeners not to punch their CPAS cards for hanging a lanyard, as the RFID chip could be damaged. Great tip, Tony, about not punching your CPAS card. The CPAS card on Harmony and also on Anthem and Ovation of the Seas uses RFID. It's not the magnetic, you know, hotel key cards that you're used to. These are RFID, so it uses a different kind of technology. And you're right, you don't want to, you don't want to put a, 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 a punch hole through that. That being said, I don't agree with you that there's no need for wild bands. I love wild bands, and the reason why I love it, Tony, is because it's about convenience. I don't know about you, Tony, but when I'm coming back to the room, oftentimes, you know, I've got like my kids' CPAS cards in my in my pocket, and I'm juggling some other things. I'm holding my one of my daughters or whatever. I hate digging for my pocket to figure out which one is the CPAS card, which one is my CPAS card. I don't like any of that stuff. Wow bands allow you to do everything that a CPAS card can do, and I just I love the convenience of it. And you know what? I it doesn't bother me one bit. In fact, I when I was on Harmony of the Seas, I purchased mine because I wanted to. I have one for my cruise, and it's the best four ninety nine I ever spent because I love that convenience. I love being able to just walk around the ship, especially the doors. Just being able to not even have to dig my pocket, just move my my wrist in the general area of the door lock, and boom, the door opens up, which is wonderful. I love that when I'm checking in for a venue, be it a show or or a, a restaurant or something, they can just easily scan my my wrist, and it's simple as that. To me, I'm a big proponent of it. I've loved it ever since I first experienced them on Quantum of the Seas, and I think they are worth it. Now, if you're staying in a suite and you're getting it for free, I don't, <laughs> there's really no reason not to use them. If you're not in a suite, I can understand why, well, you know, $4.95, four people, that's 20 bucks. Should I do it? You know, that's $20. That's, that's like, you know, two drinks right there, right? Well, I, I can see that argument. I would tell you that I enjoy it, and the other thing to keep in mind is that once you have a WoW band, you can bring it from ship to ship and exchange it for another WoW band to work on that ship with absolutely no cost. They'll exchange it for free. So, granted, I am totally a fanboy of these WoW bands, so I may not be the most unbiased person out there, Tony, but I appreciate your feedback, and thank you for the email. Next up, we have an email from Debbie, who writes, Hi, Matt. We booked a cruise on Anthem of the Sea, sailing February 26th, first time on Royal Caribbean. So, of course, I'm reading and listening to anything I can keep to keep my we're going on a cruise high going. One question I thought of that I haven't been addressed yet. If we book our next cruise while on board this time, how does it work if we have a travel agent? Do they get credit, and will we be able to work with them for that next cruise? Thanks for your information, and thanks for all the info already. Debbie, so glad to hear you're trying Royal Caribbean for the first time in Anthem of the Seas. Wonderful ship. I think you're going to have a great time. You just heard my recommendations earlier in this episode about that. So you're already off to a great start. Uh-huh. So next cruise, can you use a travel agent? So, of course, Debbie's talking about the next cruise program, which allows guests to, when you're on board a Royal Caribbean ship, get essentially free money for booking another Royal Caribbean ship. And that being said, can you work with a travel agent? Yes. In fact, if you booked the cruise you're on, so you're going on Anthem of the Seas, February 26th, and you book another cruise, whatever it happens to be, when you go to the next cruise office, automatically, whatever you book will be attributed back to that same travel agent you used for your February 26th cruise. If you didn't want that to happen, maybe you want to change travel agencies, or I don't know why, but whatever reason, just tell them at the next cruise office, hey, by the way, don't attribute it to the travel agent. Likewise, the other way around is, let's say you didn't use a travel agent, but you want to use one for the next one. Well, you can tell them, hey, I didn't use a travel agent for this cruise, but when you're making this new reservation for me, can you make sure it goes to, you know, uh-huh. you know, Joe Smith at, you know, XYZ Agency to make sure they get credit for it? 
and they'll be able to do that for you. So, uh, in fact, if you do nothing and you just go about your, your merry way and say, hey, I'd like to book a cruise, what will happen is that your agent will get an automatic notification via, I believe, email pretty soon, within a couple minutes of you booking it. They'll know all about it. So when you get off the port of that ship, they'll be like, hey, I saw you booked you know, this next cruise on here. That's awesome. You know, let me know what else we need to do to start planning this. So it's pretty simple, Debbie. They make it a very, very easy. And again, if you just want to make sure that the travel agent you use to book your first cruise is the same one you use for your next one, then there's nothing extra to do. It'll automatically happen. So good luck, Debbie. Hope you have a great time on Anthem. And Debbie, I want to hear your thoughts on your very first Royal Caribbean cruise when you get back. Next, we have an email from Naruka. I hope I pronounced that right. And I apologize if I didn't. We have uh, booked a cruise uh, for our next, on, on a Royal Caribbean ship. Our question is, is the ship all-inclusive? Please let me know. It's a good question. A lot of people wonder about this. You know, is it all-inclusive? What's included? What's not included? So the answer is it's not all-inclusive, right? You can't just go on board the ship and never pay for anything. There are things that cost extra. Certainly beverages, premium beverages like cocktails uh, will cost extra. Spa services cost you extra. Souvenirs cost you extra. Short excursions cost you extra. Some dining, uh, some some of the specialty restaurants cost you extra. The thing to keep in mind is there's plenty of other dining opportunities on board the ship that do not cost you extra. There's You can go on board the ship and never spend a dime and have plenty to eat, plenty to drink, non-alcoholic beverages, that is, and plenty of entertainment as well. The shows are almost all-inclusive. There's very few that entertainment shows that are ever costing extra money, but there's plenty both. Now, some people say, oh, that's nickel and diming, Matt. I want it all to be included. I paid a lot of money for this cruise. I actually think it's different, and the reason why I disagree with that is, number one, there is no all-inclusive. You're, I mean, there is no uh, it's all included, right? You're paying for it. The company, whatever, whether it's a cruise or a, or, a, or a resort at a beach somewhere or wherever, the company figures out, okay, here's what most people are going to be spending. Here's what it's going to cost us to do our business. You know, they figure out a, a cost for a quote-unquote all-inclusive, and they figure, you know, that, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to run a business at a loss. They're going to figure out they're gonna, what's going to be for them. And that being said, you know, if you go on a cruise and... You know, I don't want to pay for experiences that I'm not going to use. I may use the drink package, but I might not go on shore excursions. Or I might not, you know, do certain uh, things that cost extra. Like, I might not go to the spa. So, why pay for things that I'm not going to use? Because in reality, you are paying for it if it's included. And I'm using included in air quotes there. So, I like the modularity. I like it that when I go on a cruise, I can pay for the two restaurants that I want, especially restaurants that I want to eat at, the drink package, and that's it. Versus somebody else who's going on a cruise, right? My good friend Billy, he might say, you know what? I don't want the drink package. I only want to invest in shore excursions that I'm going to do in every single port. Well, cool. Good for Billy. That's what he's going to do there. And that allows you to craft the cruise vacation that you want. So I think that's actually powerful to be able to opt into these particular aspects of the cruise. Now, if you're trying to figure out what's included and what's not included, there's a lot of information at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com about this. Certainly, you can kind of figure it out by going through the cruise planner. Keep in mind that while there are uh, beverages, extra beverage packages you can buy, extra restaurants you can book it, there is plenty of complimentary food and drink available to you. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. It's just an extra option that can save you money, but it all depends on how you cruise. So I hope that makes some sense there. And thank you for the email. All right, got time for another email or two. Uh, our next email is from Phil, who writes, Hey, Matt, Mike, Mike, and Len. Oh, wait, sorry, force of habit. I booked our first cruise on Royal Caribbean, and we leave on November 28th on Majesty. We live in Orlando, so it's a quick drive. A couple questions. Every time people unpack the dress code, they never address footwear for men. Living in Florida, I rarely wear shoes. I prefer a nice pair of Birkenstocks. Can I wear that with a nice pair of pants and button-down shirt, or do I need to bring shoes? Oh, Phil. We're going to go to the dress code question. Man, how much time do we have left in this podcast? Because I need, like, about 20 minutes to discuss this. <laughs> Here's the reality, Phil. 
My interpretation of the official rules is you're not allowed to wear sandals in the main dining room, although I think that's more for men, because obviously for women, there are there's a difference between flip-flops from Old Navy and obviously designer shoes that are open-toed, right? That being said, the... The dress code rules in general are rarely enforced. I mean, unless you're showing up with no shirt or a tank top or, uh, you know, some, some jeans that have a ton of holes in them, I don't think you're going to be denied going in there. It's only for dinner, don't forget. Personally, I don't wear flip-flops to the main dining room as a guy. I love wearing flip-flops. I live in Florida too, Phil, and it's very rare that I don't wear them. I say go for it, but personally, just I'm just telling you what I do, and I'm not saying that I am the arbiter of what's right or wrong, Phil. Please, I'm not that important. <laughs> but I would I wear regular, you know, shoes to the main dining room, but totally up to you. Number two, you talked about buying alcohol at port, and how will the ship ha- hand it over to you when you're done? What if I bring a flask from home and with my own stuff in it? I enjoy a glass of scotch before bed on vacation. Don't care to pay for bar prices for it. Can I bring my own? Will they check? It's absolutely against the rules what you're talking about, Phil. It's prohibited to bring any alcohol on board the ship, with the exception of two, up to two bottles of wine on embarkation day. Now, can you get away with it? Maybe, but that's against the rules. It's it's essentially stealing, right? I mean, it's it's this is. I know that we just talked about rules that are not enforced, like the main dining room rules. The alcohol rules are very much enforced, and I don't really see the benefit of it. I mean, if you want to have a drink by yourself in your room, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I, I prefer having drinks at the bar, on the pool deck, with friends somewhere in a, in a lounge, wherever, in the dining room. It, it's just not worth it, dude. I mean, if you can afford the cruise, I, I think you can afford to pick up a drink. Even if you're drinking one drink a day, and that's your drink, that can do it. And certainly, Phil, one of the things I always recommend folks to do is take a look at those drink packages before your cruise, because the price is often discounted before the cruise. It really brings down that average price quite a bit compared to booking it on board the ship. So let me answer your question as, as stringently as I can. Uh, no, you're not allowed to do that. I can't control what you do, but it's against the rules. I'll just leave it at that. Number three, how much luggage can I bring or fit in my stateroom? Small ocean view room. Uh, there is no limit per se, Phil. I mean, it's within reason. Certainly, a couple of bags are easily to easily fit in your room. A lot of people put their luggage underneath the bed. That makes it simpler to put it away. You know, you unpack all your stuff and then you uh, put the suitcases away. If you got suitcases that can stack inside of each other, that's even better because then there's obviously less room. But you'll have enough room for, I think, what most people consider a normal amount of luggage. So. Uh, you've also said, uh, Philip writes, I've never heard a full show on Majesty. I know it's old, but it was refurbished, and it's kind of a gateway drug for a lot of people love to hear a show on it. We should do that, Phil. I know that we've had uh, a good number of friends of mine have been on there. I certainly haven't been on there yet. I tried a couple times, but got nixed by the uh, by high command, a.k.a. my wife, saying, don't need to go on another cruise. That's exactly how she sounds, by the way. Uh, <laughs> love you, honey. So that being said, uh, we should do another show. I agree with you 100% on that one. And lastly, can I go running on the ship in the morning, not in the gym? Yes. There is a running track on board. Depends on what ship you're talking about. Sometimes most ships have it up on the uh, upper pool deck. Some ships have it on the outside, like the Oasis class ship. It's actually on the outside deck. There's a, I don't know, a promenade deck. There's a running track there. But there is a running track on every single ship. As you may have heard in that episode a couple weeks ago where we talked with uh, Joe about running, the best thing you can do is try to go during early or late hours because during the daytime, peak time, people are, are around there and you can do, you'll be doing a lot of dodging as opposed to actually running. So, it may, you know, if you're looking to get a good run in, do it in the morning and that way you can have the rest of the day to enjoy not running. <laughs> Bill Wright, thanks for the show. I miss you on the old one for Disney World. I've literally had your voice on my ears for the better part of a decade now. That is crazy. Phil, 
Thank you so much for the email. Love it. And I think we're going to wrap up this episode of the Royal Cream Blog Podcast. Of course, if you want your email to be read here, I would love that. Send me an email. Matt at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. M-A-T-T at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. Whether you have a question, a comment, a thought, you totally disagree with me or you agree with me. I love those too. Send me an email. I want to read about here. So uh, Matt at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. So until next time, I'm Matt Hotchberg, and we'll talk again soon.